Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. What kid doesn't like a good game of hide-and-seek? I know I did when I was a kid. In fact, I always wanted to be the seeker in that game. You know what what I'm talking about? You have the hiders. Only one kid gets to be the seeker, one who counts, while everyone else hides. And and in fact, the way we used to play, I don't know if everybody plays this way, but the motivation for hiding well was that if you were the last one to be found in the next round, you got to be the seeker. Is that the way you played? I can still remember some of those heart-stopping moments when I was hidden somewhere and the seeker would would come close by where I was hiding and I can remember even holding my breath so that they wouldn't hear me breathing in the closet or wherever it was I was hiding. My stomach churning with excitement. Would I be found and have to run away or would the seeker miss me and move on to other places? Well, in today's passage in Genesis chapter 3, there's some hiding and seeking going on, but it's no game. This is the hiding of the guilty sinners, Adam and Eve, from the presence of him who is sinless. You know, two weeks ago when I last preached, we looked at the tragic fall of Adam and Eve from their position in the garden. God had created them in the garden to be innocent, to be in, in a place of complete beauty and harmony and intimacy with God and with one another. And then they fell. God had given them this wide permissiveness. He told them that they could eat from any of the trees in the garden. He only gave them one prohibition, not to eat from that one tree in the center of the garden. And guess what they did? And two weeks ago, as we we stepped through the first seven verses of this passage, I challenged you with this one question just to ponder it. How much sin did it take to lose paradise? How much sin did it take to end all of that? How much sin did it take to expel us from the presence of God? How much sin does it take to warrant or to deserve hell? The answer that Genesis 3 verses 1 through 7 teaches us is just one. Just one sin brought an end to all of that. You see, we drastically underestimate the holiness of God. God is sinless, and when we sin even once, it makes us unholy. It makes us sinful. It makes us lawbreakers. And the scriptures teach us that in Adam we all died. Because we all sinned in him. Not, that, that means not only that if we were standing there in that garden as the first man and the, or the first woman, that we would have done the exact same thing. We would have. 
But in a, in a closer association than that, the scriptures tell us that, that in Adam we all died and because we are in him, we all sinned. Adam's sin is my sin. Adam's sin is the root problem in my life. When Adam sinned, I died and I became a sinner before I even committed one sin. I love how I listened to Asbury's sermon online last week, even though I was in North Carolina. I love how he said it. He said that Adam's sin is the root of our sin problem. And all of our other sins is the fruit of this one action that Adam did. We sin because we are sinners. We sin because of Adam's sin. And that's why God warned Adam. That's why he warned him, don't eat from that tree. Don't sin. Don't go against my one commandment. Because on the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Now, Satan lied about that, right? He said, you shall not surely die. But God had clearly warned warned Adam and Eve that on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they did. And what we're going to go on to see here in this next portion of Genesis chapter 3 is that on the day that, and the very moment really, that Adam and Eve fell into sin, it, it changed things. It changed things. We see there at the end of the passage we were last week that the eyes of both of them were open in verse 7. And they knew they were naked. And they, they sewed fig leaves together to try to cover their shame. And they made themselves loincloths. That's what the scriptures say. Adam and Eve's fall into sin caused them to hide from God. Not as some silly game of hide and seek, but in fear and in shame. This is the hiding of one who is terrified. Not a child hiding as part of a game, but one who was terrified of being caught. So we see here in verse 8 that it is man who hides from God. It is man who hides from God. Look at, look at the beginning of verse 8 here. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve heard the sound of God. They heard him walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You know, it's possible that this what it, when it says here that they heard the sound of God walking, that, they were, that that's referring to God's footsteps, you know, leaves rustling, twigs snapping, that sort of thing as he's moving through the garden towards them. But I think it's also possible to translate this verse like the King James Version does. Let me just read that. It says, they, they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden. And I think that's what's intended here. I think the Lord was walking through the garden, calling out to Adam. Now, some of you might say, hold on just a minute. God was walking through the garden? That's right. God didn't move through the garden as a a pillar of fire or a a cloud or an orb of light. He appeared to them as a man. In a familiar way, walking through the garden and I personally believe that this was God the Son, Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus in the garden. We also see that it was the cool of the day. 
Literally, that's the breeze or the wind of the day. It's most likely referring to the early evening time. After the heat of the day and the the breezes come and start to cool things down. And I can only speculate as to the significance of this little detail, but I think that the Lord perhaps maybe routinely met with Adam and Eve in the margins of the day. I, I can only speculate that perhaps Adam and Eve maybe even could, uh, could have anticipated his coming. At, at any rate, I think knowing that it was early evening time and the, the, the cool, breezy part of the day was, is at least very descriptive for your imagination as you, as you can kind of picture this happening. And, and look at the second half of this verse. It says, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Notice that immediately after the fall, it was man who hid himself from God, not the other way around. Something had drastically changed in the relationship, and it's obvious that it wasn't the Lord God who had changed. It was man who had changed. Sin drove us from the presence, or literally, from the face of God. Before God could ever have sent Adam away, Adam had already hidden himself. So we can picture Adam and Eve here cowering behind the trees of the garden. This is humankind's first attempt to hide their sin and their shame from God. It wouldn't be the last. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. We see that Not only does man hide from God, but the story goes on to tell us, I thank God, God seeks for man. God seeks for man. You know, it strikes me that Adam didn't turn to Eve after they ate from the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and realize that they had sinned and their eyes were open. He didn't turn to her and say, oh, wow, what have we done? Come, take my hand. Let's, Let's run to the Lord and Tell him what we did. He didn't do that. No, Adam hid from God and he tried to cover his shame with fig leaves. It was God who sought man out. And I believe that in doing this, in God coming and seeking Adam, hiding in the garden, that he is already foreshadowing for us the gospel what was yet to come at this very early moment, the first few moments of sin entering into the world, and God is already showing us that man hides and God seeks for man. You know, left to our own devices, we would never come to God. We, like Adam and Eve, run astray from him and hide from him every single time. Every single time. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Have you ever gotten into an argument with your spouse or with a close friend? They, they did something to offend you. You were the innocent party. How did you tend to respond to that offense? 
You know, oftentimes in our, in our sinful flesh, we respond one of two ways, don't we? We either respond passive-aggressively or we respond aggressively when someone offends us, don't we? Which, which one? No, I'm not going to ask you. Which one you tend towards? You either pull back from that person and think, man, if they want to make it right, they need to come to me because they did me wrong, right? That's passive-aggressive. Or you explode on them and you make them pay for what they did to you by the fury of your anger. You know, when we respond that way, it's often out of sinfulness, right? But it occurs to me as I'm reading this passage that that God could have responded in these ways but only done it in a righteous way. He He could have simply pulled back from Adam and Eve and said, you know what, I gave you this beautiful garden I gave you only one prohibition, and I told you not to eat from it, so forget you. He could have backed off from them and said, you know what, hands off. I told you you would die, and now you're dead. And he could have just left them to die. He could have done that, but he didn't. Likewise, God could have showed up at the, in, in the cool of the day and simply struck them dead right there because he had warned them that's what was going to happen. He could have killed them right then and there. But he didn't. God didn't do that. From the beginning here of Adam's sin and rebellion, we see that God seeks out Adam in order to seek and to save that which is lost. Thank God for his forbearance and his mercy in what we're about to read here in these next few verses. Look at verse 9. It says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Did God not know where Adam was? Of course he knew. He knows all things. God is omniscient. He knows all things. Yet, instead of dragging Adam out from behind the trees, kicking and screaming, he calls out to him first. And does not God's call still go out into all the earth to sinners who are hiding from him? Where are you? Where are you? Child, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? One commentator has this to say, God's where are you was remedial, like a father's question to a naughty child hiding behind a door to avoid his face. The where are you asks, why are you there? Is that where you should be? Come out and face me. Come out and face me. God lovingly confronts us in our sin. We want to hide from his presence, but he, like a father going to a guilty child, says, no, come on out. Let's let's speak face to face. Let's deal with this. And so Adam shows himself. Look at verse 10. He says, and he said, this is Adam speaking now. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam here is ashamedly explaining to God why he was hiding, sort of. He says he felt afraid because he was naked. He, he, he told God what he was feeling, the consequences for his sin. But you'll notice here that Adam in no way admits any wrongdoing or any sin. He's too afraid. 
And we see here that even though Adam is no longer able to hide behind the tree physically, Adam continues to hide himself spiritually as he hides his sin in his heart. And so God presses him further, not with accusations here, but with more questions. Look at verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? These questions here, they, they still are leaving room for Adam to repent. Still. In fact, the second question here leads Adam right to the very threshold of the issue between him and God. Did you eat from that tree that I told you not to eat? God lovingly leads Adam right to the threshold of repentance. And yet, look how Adam responds. Not with contrition, but with fear. Feeling exposed and even terrified, he immediately shifts the blame. Look at verse 12. The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Sound familiar? Gone is the unspotted intimacy between Adam and Eve. Far from cherishing Eve as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh like he did back in chapter 2, Adam is quick to throw Eve under the bus. But not only does he throw his beloved, cherished wife under the bus in God's presence in, in uh, an attempt to save his own skin, but look closer than that at what Adam has said. Not only does Adam shift the blame to another person, but he ultimately hurls this insult, this accusation, back at God himself. Lord, the, the woman that you gave to be with me, if you hadn't given her to be with me, God, none of this probably would have happened. So you see, God, it's, it's your fault. Isn't that the way our hearts work? How blind our hearts are, our sinful hearts, that we're quick to blame others, anyone but ourselves, and we're so fiercely protective of our own skin. But even deeper than that, how, how much our hearts rage against the God who made us. It's not our fault, it's God's fault. God, you made me this way. God, you allowed these circumstances in my life. Proverbs 19.3 says this, A person's folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. And so we see that Adam's sin is compounded here by his hiding, by his blame shifting, and now his raging against God himself. And surprisingly, God goes along with it for a moment. He follows Adam's blame shifting here, and he turns to Eve with one final question in verse 13. He says this, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This question here, What have you done? What have you done? By this point, this question from God is more of an expression of grief than an expectation of new information. But Eve, she answers the Lord defensively anyway. 
seeking to justify herself, she blames the serpent. Hey, it's not my fault. He tricked me. More blame shifting, no repentance. Now, Eve was legitimately deceived by Satan's lies. Still, we'll see in the rest of, the ch- of Genesis chapter 3 that, that even that is no excuse for Eve going against the command of God. And so, as we come to the, the end of this paragraph that we're looking at this morning, I believe we, we're seeing a pattern here that begun in our first parents, Adam and Eve, and it has been reenacted countless times by us, their great, 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 great grandchildren, again and again. Man and woman hides from God, but God in his mercy seeks for man. And I I really truly believe that we see here in this confrontation that God is preparing the groundwork of the gospel. Good news. Right here, the the most tragic event of all history that man fell from his, his glorious position in the Garden of Eden. And yet, here from the very first interaction, we see that God is coming to man in a gracious way. And so in, in light of what we've just read, let me encourage you in, in three basic ways. First of all, don't try to hide from God. I mean, this is maybe the most obvious application that, that arises out of this passage. It truly is foolish to think that you can hide from God. God is not fooled. He doesn't uh, struggle to see what you've done in the dark. Right? He doesn't struggle to see what you've hidden in your heart and what you've told no one else about. God sees your heart. God knows what you've thought. He knows what you've done. And I'm warning you this morning in love that some of you are playing a dangerous game. You think hide-and-seek with God is a game, but it's not. God sees, God knows, God will find you. Your sins will find you out. The scriptures teach us that there is a judgment coming. If you wonder where is God, he is is hiding himself because we have hidden ourselves from him. And if his face were to show up now, he would show up in judgment, but it's because of his mercy and his forbearance that he waits He gives room, he gives space for you to repent and to turn from him, to come out of hiding and to come to him. You can easily fool me, you can easily fool everybody in this room, but you cannot fool God. God sees and God knows and oh, that we would all be broken over our sin. All of us. God sees my sin, he sees your sin. David, the psalmist, wrote in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. 
Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness as as light with you. The psalmist, as a believer, finds comfort in this thought that God sees him at all times. But to the unrepentant sinner, the fact that God sees should be terrifying to know that he sees you at all times and he knows. You know the prophet Jonah? You know Jonah and the whale? It's a famous Bible story. The prophet Jonah learned the hard way that you cannot run and hide from God. God told Jonah clearly to go to Nineveh and preach a message of repentance. And what does Jonah do? He goes down to the port city, he gets on a ship, and he goes the opposite way, away from the presence of the Lord. He thought he could run away from God. Well, you know how that worked out for Jonah, don't you? God hurled a storm on the sea, on the boat in which he was fleeing. Jonah is chucked out of the boat into the sea and scooped up by a great fish and taken back in the direction he should have gone in the first place. You don't want to try to run and hide from God. God is capable of even coming after you. And by the way, how tragic it is. How tragic would it be if God didn't come after you? To come back to my my opening illustration of playing hide-and-go-seek as a child. Did you ever have the experience when you're playing hide-and-go-seek where you... You go and you hide and you're hiding and you're thinking, man, I have a great spot. No one's finding me. And then come to find out, like a half hour later, you find out nobody's seeking you, right? They, they all stopped playing. They went inside and they're watching TV and you're still hiding. How tragic is it? The most tragic thing that can ever happen is, is to say, I have successfully hidden myself from God. How tragic would it be if God never came after you? How tragic would it be if you got away with your sin? But God, he loves, you, loves us too much to let us just get away from it, to let us hide. He comes after us and he seeks us. And so don't try to hide from God. Secondly, stop blame shifting. James 1, verses 13 through 15, cuts to the heart of Adam and Eve's blame shifting and puts the target of blame where it belongs, right on us. James said this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It's not God's fault. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Don't blame God. Don't even blame Satan. Blame the the right person. Blame yourself. Take ownership of your sin and, and admit it to God. God, I have sinned before you. 
and before others. Repentance, you hear that biblical word thrown around a lot. Repentance is the opposite of blame shifting, right? You picture yourself being confronted for something and you're pointing the finger everywhere. Repentance is saying, no, you're right, it's me. It's me. Taking ownership of the blame and instead begging God for his mercy and his grace. So don't try to hide from God and stop blame shifting. And thirdly, answer God's call. Answer God's call. People, as I said, often want to know, where is God? Why does he hide himself? And as I've already said, I'll I'll restate it again, it is actually God's forbearance that causes him to hide his face and to leave room for you to repent. It is his forbearance. He's overlooking the sin for now, leaving room for you to repent. It is actually God's grace that seeks after you, and it is his mercy that calls to you, where are you? Where are you? If you will hear it. Jesus announced in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man, that was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thank God that Jesus came into the world not to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. He came not to condemn at first, but he came to seek and to save that which is lost. There's so many parables in the Gospels, so many stories in the Gospels about God seeking for that which is lost. And God is still in his kindness calling out to lost sinners, hiding in fear and shame today. He calls to you. Where are you? What have you done? To which you ought to respond, Here I am, Lord. I have sinned. Have mercy on me. 1 John 1, verse 6 says this, If we have fellowship with him, meaning God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The good news, my friends, is that God sent his son into the world to die a sinless death so that as he shed his blood on the cross, he wasn't shedding his blood for his own sin, but he was shedding his blood for the sins of those who repent and believe in him. He was a sinless sacrifice for you. And not only did he defeat sin on the cross once for all, but he defeated death by rising again from the grave. He is alive and he validated his sacrifice as authentic by rising from the dead. And he didn't stop there either. He rose from the grave and then he ascended on high to the right hand of God the Father and where, where he has been enthroned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the scriptures warn us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, willingly or unwillingly, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so my prayer 
has been this week that God would use my voice somehow to give amplification to his call. Where are you? Stop your hiding, stop your blame shifting, and come to me and be forgiven of your sins. Won't you come today? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you, and we, we thank you, Lord, for this message. We thank you for, uh, Lord, just the, the glorious truth, Lord, that though we hid ourselves from the very beginning from you, Lord, in the very first day of rebellion, you came out into the garden and you sought us and called us by name. Father, I pray that you would give ears to hear that call. I pray that you would give eyes to see the truth. I pray that you would give new life to those who are cut off from you because of Adam's sin. Lord, may this drama of redemption that we're reading about in Genesis, Lord, we long to see it played out in, in our midst, in our church. Lord, call us back to you, to you, Lord. Bring us to repentance of sin. Lord, let us not be proud. But Lord, let us be broken. For Lord, you are holy and we are not. Lord, we thank you for the provision of Jesus Christ, Lord. I pray that that provision would be oh so clear to each person who's here today. Lord, help us all to walk away from this moment changed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.